0: what we learn from bauer is about the nature of a a socialist mass party a social democratic mass party
1: this program is brought to you by haymarket books as part of our live event series haymarket books is a radical independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world you can help support the haymarket project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org, and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
2: Good evening, everybody. And thank you for joining us for our book presentation. It is Otto Bauers' The Austrian Revolution. by Haymarket Publishers. This is the first English translation of this important and very complex book. Uh, The book has originally been published in German in 1925, and covers uh, interesting aspects of the socialist transformation or endeavor to, um, to make a socialist transformation in the newly established Austrian Republic after the World War I. Uh, the book, as I said, is uh, very complex, covers several different uh, issues, like the history of the Austrian Empire and the nationalities problems, uh, the problems uh, with um, with the new Austrian state and establishment of the new Austrian Repub- Republic in the months immediately after the world conclusion of the World War One, and proceeds with um, detailed historical accounts and analysis of the so called socialization uh, idea and process um, as managed by the uh, Austrian Workers Socialist uh, Workers' Party of Austria. Uh, This is basically the the structure of the book, and we have here with us tonight uh, three distinguished scholars who will uh, give you uh, deeper insights about the problem the book is originally discussing, but we will go also beyond that. We will discuss uh, the problems of our time also in the light of of the book, The Austrian Revolution. So our focus for tonight and the red line of our presentations and debate will be actually the the socialist transformation process. Uh, Our guests this evening are uh, Walter Bayer from Vienna, uh, Walter uh, holds a PhD in the, uh, in economy, and has a uh, long time uh, uh, been working in the Communist Party of Austria. Uh, he is currently the head of uh, the Transform Austria. He published uh, several books on uh, on socialism, on the history of of uh, Austro Marxism. And uh, we will actually um, start with his presentation. He will give us uh, deeper, a little more insights about the book, about the context of the time uh, in Austria. And then we will uh, proceed to Mike Davis, also uh, distinguished uh, uh, professor emeritus uh, from the, US, the University of California, Irvine, and uh, very prolific and famous uh, author, uh, journalist, theoretician and a scholar. Uh, we will talk about, uh, with Mike Davis, uh, we will deepen our insights into Otto Bauer's book, but we will also introduce uh, his experiences and share with you his experiences in, uh, in research on uh, social movement in municipality uh, politics. After that, we will give the floor uh, to Hilary Wainwright, also a uh, very important uh, uh, and distinguished scholar, uh, she had she had uh, such a um, great career that uh, it would be <laughs> I don't even have a time to, to name all her positions and all her books. Uh, she worked on uh, on let's say political parties and uh, political movements, both in Europe and in Latin America, and uh, her most recent research revolves around uh, British uh, politics and, uh, actually, the politics of the British Labour Party in the in the last decade. So we will start with with a short presentations uh, of our our guests tonight, and then we will proceed with um, with a discussion that uh, I will lead you through discussion, and uh, finally I want to ask you after. We have uh, finished this official part of the discussion. To ask your questions, um, you can ask your questions by sending, by writing them down, and uh, sending them to Sean. And uh, I will then. Uh, we, we have limited time, so I'm 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 sorry in advance. We will probably not be able to answer all of them. But uh, within our limited time, I will give my best to, to let's say, um, arrange it this way that, that we that we cover most of the of the issues and uh, and the themes in in those questions. So I would now uh, like to, to give uh, the floor to Walter Bayer, uh, who will uh, introduce us to to the book. Microphone, please.
3: Uh, Walter, microphone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you very much, Dunja. Uh, There are, of course, many good reasons to make Otto Bauer's uh, brilliantly written book, The Austrian Revolution, accessible to the English speaking world. Uh, Thank you, uh, Haymarket Publishers and Transform Europe, to uh, have made this possible. One of, (coughs) pardon me, One of these good reasons is Central Europe with its national conflicts, which is uh, a very uh, rich area in terms of languages uh, cultures uh, experiences and uh, no incidentally the first important book published by Bauer in 1907 uh, deals with uh, the question of nationalities and social democracy. This is also its title. Uh, For those who are uh, not familiar with Central Europe uh, Austria-Hungary has been an empire composed of 10 nationalities for historic reasons and due to the migratory flows triggered by the emergence of capitalism, uh, in many cases, not only one national community, but two or three of them inhabited one territory or uh, one city. Thus, uh, one easily understands that any reform policy, and particularly when it came to uh, a common fight for the universal suffrage, affected national issues. Otherwise said, general democracy could only be achieved under the condition of uh, democratic and fair solutions of the national contradictions. When Austria's social democracy was founded, in the nineteenth century, thus it could not help but being international, which why it also was called the Little International. Both positions discussed among the big brains of the second international were not applicable to the Austrian case. Neither also Luxembourg, who claimed national self-determination is a hollow shell the only self-determination socialists can commit themselves to is the self-determination of the working class. And on the opposite extreme, Lenin, who claimed the unconditional right of national separation for every nation, something which was promptly forgotten once uh, being uh, in power anyway. So Austria's social democracy developed their own original national program, of which the major authors were Karl Renner and Otto Bauer. I will not go into this complicated issue. However, what is true is that nationalism and imperialist rivalries have been the source of of two devastating wars in Europe, And many examples of the recent years, in particular the crisis of European integration, testify for that it is still alive. Perhaps the chapters in the Austrian Revolution describing the disintegration process of the Habsburg state and the beginning of the World War motivate some readers to investigate the complicated issue of national relations as an essential aspect of democracy. Second reason more than a century ago, social democrats in Austria called themselves social democrats because they wanted to materialize by democratic means a new society which they called socialism. Today they advocate no more than a neoliberalism was a human face, an oxymoron in fact which in practice comes down to mitigate its worst excesses but what does the socialist left stand for, given the multiple crisis of global capitalism, it must become serious in raising the question question of a societal alternative, however, not as a promised land disconnected from its everyday practice, in trying to find ways to get from here to there, it is very worthy to investigate the Austro-Marxist experience. First, because the Social Democratic Workers' Party after World War I was a mass party which represented 40% of the electorate nearly 90% of the working-class voters and its membership amounted to 10% of the Austrian population. Thus, this experience was a mass experience. Second, the exemplary social programs executed in uh, Red Vienna, in particular the housing program, represents the most advanced example of communal socialism so far. Imagine even today a quarter of the apartments in the city of Vienna with two million inhabitants belong to the municipality. And by the way, one third of them being constructed in the short period between 1926 and 1933. Third, the program for a transition to socialism with democratic means. Social, democ- Social Democrats and Communists never stopped disputing whether Otto Bauer and the party leadership was right or wrong when they refused in 1918 to erect a Council Republic and kept instead the revolution in a parliamentarian frame. You find the relevant arguments pro and contra in the book, and I will not repeat them here. More relevant for actual politics are the experiences of the socialization campaign. In 1919, Otto Bauer explained his plan in a brochure under the title The Path to Socialism. Since he did not want to entrust the state, the governance of the economy, he proposed a system in which on all levels and in all branches, representatives of the workers, representatives of the consumers and of the state or the municipalities would form the governing bodies and elect the commercial and technical management. However, this reasonable plan to get the industry afloat was thwarted by the Minister of Finances, who sold the biggest industrial enterprise to a foreign investor. Latest by then, it was obvious that sitting in a coalition government with the conservatives and holding the power were substantially different things. So the question of the socialization transformed into the question of the state. What Bauer suggested in the Austrian Revolution is that in periods of intense political struggles, the working class represented through its political party can achieve a balance of class forces, which in case it turned to the left, could open the path to socialism, an idea which was taken up 14 years la- 40 years later by the PJE, which believed itself to be in the anteroom of power. Fourth, independent from the reciprocal blame game between socialists and communists, it was latest with the defeat of the Hungarian Council Republic in 1919 that the shift between the power relations became unfavorable to the left, that became obvious. In consequence, the social democrats were ousted from the government. Being in opposition, but disposing still of important power positions, they had to change their strategy from what Gramsci has called the war of movement to a long-term war of positions. There is one of the results, among many others, were programs for an agricultural reform and the adoption of a more open attitude towards the Catholic Church, both aimed at gathering an electoral majority. This shift in the main top is the main topic of the book Austrian Revolution. The concepts developed here informed the famous party program of Linz, in which the party threatened to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat if the bourgeoisie opposed a democratic establishment of socialism by extra legal means. However, we know this remained empty words, although the party commanded a considerable self-defense force, which which of course was inferior to the combined forces of the army, the police, and the right-wing paramilitary groups. Fifth, the, the defeat. How could a party of this size holding with uh, the city of Vienna, an impregnable fortress be defeated? The answer is multifaceted. One was given by Bauer himself, who spoke already before the military defeat of the tragedy of a big party in a little country. Indeed, after 1933, Austria became a playing thing between Mussolini and Hitler, with little space to maneuver even for the conservatives who, in cracking down the labor movement, did the dirty job for Hitler. Another answer is of economic nature. In fact, the Social Democrats did not find any way of protecting the working classes from the devastating effect of the world economic crisis, which eroded their mass basis long before the military defeat. The third answer concerns the party itself. When the party was banned in 1934, the government had to ban no less than 1,200 associations ranging from gymnastic clubs, dance clubs, workers' fishing, temperance societies, free thinkers' movement, socialist Christians, allotment garden clubs, etc. What kind of organization has that been, which was so deeply rooted in civil society? As you read in the Austrian revolution, Bauer speaks full of enthusiasm about what he called the functional democracy, namely the permanent consultation of the workers by the coalition government under the leadership and later with the participation of the Social Democratic Party. Other social democratic leaders, like the philosopher Max Adler, had a more sober view, and Kate Leichter, a famous left winger in the party, even a critical one. In a research proposal for the Frankfurt Institute of Social Research dealing with the problems of authority in the Austrian labor movement, which is ascribed to her, she speaks of it as a system of coaxing, realizing via the axiomatically demanded unity of the party. The key person in this, she says, was the party shop steward, Vertrauensmann in German, the most important psychological figure within the party, neither an extremely authoritarian nor a revolutionary character. And in the proposal she states, and I quote from it, one is almost tempted to draw the not completely congruent parallel with the feudal system, in which a pyramid of authorities was established, with a continuous conformment of titles, confirmant of titles and authority. So, what is distinct about power and the austro Michael Kretke calls their contribution to state and transformation theory superior to everything offered commonly in Marxism. In my opinion, this is so for three extraordinary conditions. A, because it was a collective work, an effort of outstanding theoreticians to overcome stagnation and orthodoxy in second international Marxism. B, it existed in a symbiosis with a mass party of the working class, and C, being the biggest party of the country governing the capital city, it confronted them with the virtually all theoretical and practical problems of state politics, obliging to think things through to the deepest bottom and the farthest consequence. The answers they found may be, in many cases, not direct one, the correct one. However, the methods they applied were innovative and valuable. Thanks for attention. Uh,
2: thank you very much, uh, Walter, for these uh, insightful uh, thoughts. Uh, now I would like to ask uh, Mark Davis, uh, what do you think um, what is, what is the message? Uh, does this book uh, has, let's say, experiences or messages for our contemporary uh, struggles? Uh, does it contribute to enable us uh, to, to think anew about uh, new forms of revolutionary theory and practice? Uh, please, uh, the floor is yours.
1: I'd like to uh, focus on two issues that the book raises. Um, One of those is the question of the relationship of the city to the countryside and the agrarian policies of social democracy in Central Europe. The second is the question of the relationship of the Austrian party. Uh, to its own social base and to activism in that social base. The first question uh, has a paramount importance in Bauer's reflections on the Austrian Revolution. Uh, Vienna, an industrial metropolis, along with other industrial centers in Lower Austria, producing for an empire of 55 million people, protected by an, an imperial tariff system. But suddenly the empire breaks up, the tariffs disappear, and Austria finds itself ahead with a, uh, a body. Uh, a third of the population in Vienna, but two-thirds in uh countryside or or, or smaller cities dominated by an Austrian peasantry uh, which has its own social stratification but it's hegemonized by uh, the Christian Social Party which of course is a Catholic party and in the countryside the key role played by the uh, Uh, Catholic hierarchy in the organization and politics of it. It also has an urban base uh, rooted in the uh, urban petty bourgeoisie, not the uh, big uh, uh, bourgeoisie. Uh, And Bauer, you know, explains why in order to create and maintain this Balance of power, what he calls the class equilibrium, that the Social Democrats basically concede the countryside to the Christian Social Party. Now it's interesting to compare this with the example of the socialist government in uh during the spring of 1919 in Bavaria under Kurt Eisner and of the Hungarian Council Republic. In Bavaria the socialists tried to create and nurture a peasant council movement along with the organization of, of, of farm workers. Uh, this was not successful uh, because simply of the – Social weight and, and and cultural dominance of the, you know the larger peasant farmers and again of the Catholic hierarchy and of course the Catholic Church is a major counter-revolutionary uh, uh, player during the revolutionary crisis of 1919 to 1922. The third example is Hungary under the Council Republic. And in the case of Hungary, where feudalism survived the longest on great landed estates, there's much more social material for uh, creating alliances with small peasants and with farm laborers. But the government of Beyla Kun uh, <clears throat> sticks fanatically and dogmatically to the position of Friedrich Engels, which became orthodoxy in the Central European Social Democratic Parties, that peasant agriculture was doomed. And any attempt to try and save it uh, or build alliances with it was simply to uh, associate social democracy with basically what were you know, doomed social... Uh, uh, you know, strata. This turns out to have been a pretty disastrous policy. Although the terrain we're talking about is very variegated and and differentiated by the types of agricultural production in the countryside. Probably the greatest opportunities for revolutionary energy in the countryside are, for instance, in East Prussia. You know, on you know, on the greatest days. But this question is so important, uh, both in Bauer's uh, balance sheet on the Austrian Revolution, but also in reconceptualizing, returning to the question of what really was the possibility for revolutionary change in Europe uh in the immediate post World One uh, uh uh period. There's also the fact that food politics becomes the Achilles heel of any attempts at revolutionary trans- transformation. Uh the American uh food aid Becomes an enormously powerful lever, dangling uh, in terms of the politics of, of Austria and Germany and then Central Europe in, in, in general, as they're cut off from their uh, agriculture, major agriculture hinterlands, major grain-producing regions, the Hungarian plains and. Uh, and and Czechoslovakia. And this is a weapon uniquely welded by the United States in the Wilson uh, administration. Uh, And something can be explored by reference to one of the great books on revolution in Central Europe in this period, Arnold Mayer's uh, magisterial study at the Versailles Conference and the Entente's counter revolutionary policies uh, in in the period. So I think we need to realize, and as Bauer prompts us to, that some of our conventional understandings, sort of cliches, uh, about this period really need to be uh, you know revisited. The second thing I wanted to focus on um, is the relationship between the party, the, the party apparatus, and rank and file activism. Bauer makes an extraordinary case because he's fully conscious of, of the, you know, the the role of uh, of the party in his leadership. In suppressing revolutionary spontaneity, that the only hope for preserving space for radical social reform in the party is to dampen down and oppose any attempts at a council government a revolutionary uprising, as in Munich or uh, uh, you know or Budapest. And he's startlingly honest about this, and you know, and straightforward. Uh, but at the same time, uh, departing from German social democrats and and Mensheviks, in supporting cautiously and critically, of course, but nonetheless supporting Bolshevism uh, as a proper or necessary course in in Russia, but as an enemy. Of any kind of social democratic future in in Austria, which uh is surrounded by you know uh, an antagonistic petty bourgeoisie dependent on allied food uh policies, trying to navigate its way very complicatedly through the you know the politics of the of the uh you know the Entente. But beyond this is the deeper question, which Michel raised earlier in his famous account of uh, German social democracy's initial electoral victories and the sudden bureaucratization of the German Social Democratic Party. And it's a question that remains absolutely uh, vital and urgent today which is, does a reformist left-wing government in power increase and create an atmosphere that supports the increase of mass activism? Or does it, in fact, act as a substitute for it? And though Bauer so bravely faces the question of the constraints on revolutionary uh, transformation in the, in the policies of party. This is a question that kind of you know shadows his writings and the very nature of the Austrian Social Democratic Party as a kind of political machine dominated by non-proletarian uh, intellectuals and, and politicians. Uh, who, as a result, particularly of the autonomy that Vienna acquires as a province in 1922, control a vast trade union apparatus, but also an equally large municipal, uh, uh, you know, bureaucracy. And you can see some of the contradictions of that, of course, in what follows uh, in the Civil War in 19. You know, 1934, forever postponing revolutionary initiative in the sake of, you know, uh, strongly argued pragmatism. But at the end of the day, you know, having so, you know, reduced the capacity for revolutionary action for the necessary uh, left turn that is always in the You know, depicted by the Austrian social democrats, as the eventual stage because the war position is, uh, Bauer explains very carefully in this, you know, in this book, is only a temporary condition. Just as class equilibrium and the contest for the state within a parliamentary uh, framework can only be a temporary uh, position. I'm sorry to go on at such length.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, David. And now I would like to give a floor to to Hillary. Hillary, um, being uh, an expert on contemporary uh, party politics and social movements uh, in both Europe and uh, Latin America, but especially in in Britain in the uh, um, last years, can you uh, tell us how... Can, let's say, social movements and political parties uh, today, uh, socialist parties, leftist parties, leftist movements, relate to, to the insights uh, gained at, uh, by, by Austro-Marxism? Is there anything they can learn from them?
0: Thanks, Dunya. And and also huge thanks to Haymarket Press and to Walter and Eric Canape, who's not on the panel but is there somewhere, who for, for producing this book because it is so rich. I mean, I was completely overwhelmed by it and I thought in thinking about tonight, I was thinking, I can't, there's nothing I can say. This is I just want to sit and listen to Walter and Mike uh talk in more depth about, about the Austrian context. Um so uh, then, you know, Walter, and now you um, sort of encourage me to try and draw out some insights for the situation, well, in Britain, and then I can draw some thoughts from observing experiences in, in Brazil and in parts of other parts of Europe. I'm not an expert on, on you know, uh, uh, the situation in, in Britain. I've just had to face it. I mean, well... It, it, it last this time, two three years ago, it was hugely optimistic. Um, so, but facing defeat, which in a way is one of the the lessons of, of of Bauer's book. I mean, the importance of the left analyzing defeat. We have this tendency to sort of when things go wrong to move on. You know, when things go wrong in Brazil, you know, you then look at Venezuela. You know, so never really addressing. The difficulties, so I have i mean I was beginning to more work on the role of trade unions in relation to climate change and and the transition to a low carbon economy, but I had to face up to what went wrong with um, the whole Corbin movement, and so maybe I should first begin to i should first say that 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 what we learn from Bauer is about the nature of a, a socialist mass party, a social democratic mass party, and for uh, socialists in Britain, that's interesting because the Labour Party is not, I would say, a mass socialist party, it never has been. In two respects, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm hoping people maybe are a little bit interested in Britain, but I'm always a bit embarrassed because I find you know myself i always want to escape britain but anyway just to reflect on this recent experience which is interesting but it goes back to the the its failure goes back to the character of the labor party you know it 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 was never really a socialist party but it came out of the trade unions unlike the um social democratic parties on um on the continent that were created by by socialists The Labour Party was created by trade unionists wanting representation in Parliament to protect their rights and their rights to organise, which of course is very important, but it wasn't socialism. And only well, two, three, uh, maybe um, after the first formation of the beginnings of the Labour Party, the Labour Representation Committee. About ten years later, the constitution of the Labour Party was drawn up, and it did include a commitment to um, the common ownership of the means of production, coming from the Fabians, a sort of group of rather um, elitist intellectuals, who saw the plan a planned economy as you know more efficient, um, but it wasn't about socialist emancipation. It wasn't about um, socialist transformation about about working class power, about the realization of working class um, capacity, um, and. Um, in a way, the idea, it's had a huge membership. It's always had a huge membership if you include the affiliation of the trade unions. But they affiliate as a block, <coughs> So they don't, it's not about a membership, a political membership. Sorry, I've got a slight sore throat. I mean, they, what comes over very much in <coughs> bauer 's book about the social democratic party in austria is is the kind of political debates the political consciousness um, of of the individual members <coughs> in Britain. The whole idea of political debate political education is hardly present i mean at, at the very beginning there was a moment when um, <clears throat> the local trades councils the local trade unions um were in effect the Labour Party and they were a kind of source of debate and argument and <clears throat> individual membership. But this was this was quickly changed by the trade union leadership who saw this as undermining their power. So the, <clears throat> the relationship between the unions and the Labour Party has always been mediated through the trade union leadership. And the other key feature of the British Labour Party – <clears throat> which distinguishes itself from which distinguishes it from the uh mass social democratic parties on the on the continent is that it it is is the nature of the british state i mean um i don't want to romanticize the 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 um the, the you know the, the um bourgeois states on the continent but at least they have a written constitution in which formally there is a presumption that delegates that represent parliamentary representatives <coughs> are accountable to the people. Parliamentary representatives in Britain, they make a, an oath to the crown, to the monarch, who symbolises the state in Parliament. So their accountability is upwards to the state, not to the people. And and this this uh, the th- this is symbolic in some ways, but it's also Indicative of the fact that the parliamentary party, the, the delegate, the part, the delegates, they're on the contrary, their their parliamentary representatives, and they see themselves as autonomous from the party itself. So in a way, um, it, it 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 means that really they they have no accountability. To the party, and when the part, the party is more subject to radicalization, like during the general strike, and then more recently with Tony Benn, and then more recently with with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but the parliamentary party sees itself as as separate, uh, as in some sense um, a kind of almost reflecting the kind of position of the crown, a sort of reflected glamour. Uh, of, of the crown, of, of, of monarchy. And um, this has always meant that the, that the parliamentary party has been a kind of dominant power, dominant power structure in the in the Labour Party without any kind of accountability. And this is exactly the problem for Corbyn, that he was, although he was elected by the members, and that included the trade union members, you know, when he got into parliament, when he got into the leadership, the parliamentary party was completely against him, so that in a way he was a prisoner of this highly undemocratic structure of both the British state and the and the British Labour Party. Um, and in a way, the tradition of the Labour Party has always been deferential towards the British state, so that there's no there's no tradition of challenging it. And indeed, challenging it is seen as as being um, risky, of of kind of um, being uh, electorally suicidal. And so Corbyn was faced with this context of um, being in the leadership, um, but not being in power because he he didn't really have power over the party apparatus and certainly didn't have power over the parliamentary party. And at the same time, the members obviously want to, See him in government, but to be in government, you've got to um, you've got to win uh, a very sort of a majority in a rather conservative population that has got this sort of um, shadow of the monarch and um, and and, and, the, and a parliamentary sovereignty as distinct from a popular sovereignty over it, and so in a way, there's a similar sort of um dilemma, I think it was Mike that talked about this question of the role of a left government is it does it does it act to stimulate um, um, political activity and consciousness amongst the mass of working class people or does it does it um sort of incorporate it and in some way dampen it and in a way corbyn was 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 on this was actually sort of. Politically living this contradiction, because on the one hand, um, when in 1917, sorry, 2017, for mistake, he um, he 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 did very well in the elections. He he kind of took the ruling class by surprise, you could say, and actually. Uh, nearly won in terms of votes. I mean, they'd all predicted that he would he would be it would be a disaster and the Labour Party would 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 collapse or divide or you know it, it, anyway he would fall. Actually, uh, he 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 nearly he upset Theresa May's majority government. That was the Conservative Prime Minister, and almost. Elmer became prime minister, and that alerted the ruling class for the next period. But at that moment, uh, obviously all the members who'd supported Jeremy Corbyn were incredibly excited and and hopeful, and that led to a situation where he and the Labour leadership around him uh, acted as like a government in waiting. And the result of this was exactly the kind of, um, if you like, um dampening of um, of of mil- of extra parliamentary militancy of building power. instead it it led to that focus on 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 winning elections, which has always been the kind of downfall of the left um in the u k so this does lead on to the question of 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 counterpower which maybe we 'll be discussing later, but I think the the british experience. It it does it does relate in many ways because also if you look to 1945 when uh, again obviously very different from the end of the First World War but but there was a, a level of mobilisation there were workers soldiers councils and in a way the 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 the, um, the rank and file soldiers uh, of the British Army <clears throat> along with the workers who'd who'd produced the weapons who'd who who in the, in the population who would kind of mobilized for the war there was a, an incredible politicization which led to the defeat of Winston Churchill and led to a kind of mass pressure on the labor party which in government it it slowly diffused and and um undermined but there was a potential there and that did lead to some Radical municipalities and even just within any municipality, some um, radical policies, which actually on housing, interestingly relating to Mike, Mike's points about municipal housing, it actually led to some very um, dramatic. I don't know the statistics, but certainly in the, the city where I lived and in another, I lived in Leeds and was born in Leeds and <clears throat> another northern city, Sheffield, we had... Explicitly, flats based on the v- the Viennese model. That's when I first heard, as a, as a child, about Red Vienna, because the Quarry Hill flats were, you know, I was pointed out were were built on the on the model of, of Red Vienna. Although there was no open air swimming pools, which was, um, you know, clearly a setback. Um, so this now that, that we've got this book and this this whole experience is is going to be publicly debated and, and, and the lessons kind of spread. I think that will help the debates in the UK where the issue of counterpower, which means also thinking about the trade unions in a different way. I mean, that's another thing that comes out of the book, how politicized the trade unions were. Whereas in Britain, in a way, they delegate their politics to the labor party to parliamentary politics and i think people are drawing lessons now from the corbyn experience which are, are not a kind of repeat you know of how do we how do we make one more heave one more move inside the labor party and repeat the experience i think there is a, a more in a way the, the corbyn experience brought us up against so or brought masses of of working-class people who've become radicalised by the experience up against the nature of the British state. And already the British state is in a state of um, of, of disintegration with Scotland and Wales and the possibility of a united Ireland. Um, and I think now the issue is going to be much more about how do we build an adequate counterpart and what this means for political parties. We'll be discussing later, but I'll stop there. I've been on enough... <laughs>
2: Uh, thank you we will go with another round of uh, of the questions that I have for you and we have uh, incoming questions some of them very interesting that then after this round we will uh, proceed to, to these questions uh, uh, let's say now I would like to ask you mark uh, we the the when we read uh, the, the Bauer's book we see immediately that uh, the the biggest problems they face is actually the, the dependence, the dependence of, the, of this small, relatively small state on uh, global supply chains, on international supply chains. They don't have coal, they have a problem with food, and so on and so on. And then we see also dependence on credit um, in globalized world. Is it possible? Uh, and this, this were the problems like a hundred years ago, where the the world has not been as globalized and as interdependent as it is now. Uh, is it? And they failed on it. They they crashed on it actually on 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 this uh, uh, global liberal capitalist um, uh, system. So is it possible at all? What do you think? To to uh, now we have it even 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 more even even more. Tighter grip of, of, of this globalized capitalism. How is it possible to, to think about change, about radical transformations, in terms of nation states or in terms of limited spaces in the ocean of uh, of globalized capitalism? And and um, uh, is it so? Does the change has to be global to succeed, or is it possible? To do better than, uh, Austro Marxist back then and to really like, uh, organize territorially in a territorial manner, uh, islands of, of, of socialist spaces within, as I said, uh, uh, the context of the globalized capitalism. Uh, what, what would you say? Mike. He doesn't hear me. <laughs> oh,
1: do you hear me? Uh, did you? Yes, I do, but you're addressing this to Mark, correct? To Walter, correct? Uh,
2: no, I actually wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask Walter after that what he thinks about
1: uh, Otto Bauer and Gramsci uh, relationship. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give a give kind of a bleak answer to that question. Uh, Austrian socialism's greatest achievement, of course were concentrated in the municipal housing program and public education reforms in Vienna. And this was part, it has to be seen in the larger framework of a root and branch debate about socialist urbanism, or for that matter, de-urbanization that began in the 1880s and Perhaps William Morris should get credit in England uh, for launching this debate. And in particular, starting with the idea of garden cities for uh, skilled uh, workers and artisans. And it's a debate that produced its both greatest realizations in terms of municipal policy, but also its boldest ideas in the 1920s. Uh, it was an area of imagination and policy that, of course, was brought to an abrupt halt when, during the bombardment of the Karl Marx House in, ni- in February 1934, and social democratic housing and municipal policies after the Second World War. Uh almost never came near close to the audacity and freedom of imagination that was enjoyed before nineteen thirty four Now Red Vienna was made possible uh by the strength of the unions uh, you know a powerful union centered in the city. By the fact that the socialists took advantage of hyperinflation uh, to make some very large scale land acquisitions, and by the political autonomy that was given as part of the uh, class compromise or equilibrium, and the recognition of Vienna as a province, uh, which gave unusual. Freedom of action uh, to the city, even if it severed politically the relationship, uh, which in the economic sense was absolutely integral between Vienna and southern Austria, industrial southern Austria. But Red Vienna wasn't a single program or strategy. Uh, in fact, it was a vigorous debate between two views of what. Uh, a socialist or social democratic uh, city could be on one hand, well let me first say that Vienna had terrible housing conditions before the first world war uh, you know similar to those of, of of berlin, for example, or other large european and and industrial uh, uh, cities, and this pitted Workers in a very stark way against the lower middle class, the middle classes in Vienna, uh, who were a large scale landlord uh, 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 class. During the war and at its end with demobilization, Chenitans. Uh, uh, wild housing as was called shanning towns appeared on the periphery in the outskirts uh, of the city and in a sense the first coordinated policy or vision was using self-help and municipal aid the conversion of these shanning towns into um, uh, decent housing on the garden city model, and architectural modernism is particularly associated uh with this movement but by the middle twenties, there's an abrupt turn toward high rise uh housing massive housing complexes in the center. And there's a very interesting contrast here with Germany. In Germany, the Garden City model uh remained dominant and was used by this social democrats to reward skilled social democratic uh uh workers who are the main recipients of, of the housing reforms. Well the great inner city slums, the areas like New Columb and Berlin or, uh, you know, in Hamburg with their strong communist constituencies uh, were to a large extent totally uh, ignored. Vienna was different because it tackled housing not only for the skilled workers, but because the unions were so large and encompassing of rehousing the poorest sectors of, of the Viennese working class. And although today we tend to look back on all large-scale high-rise housing uh, developments as is is being you know doomed from the beginning to become uh, you know slums and a totally failed idea of housing, this is not what happened uh, in in Vienna. The enormous housing complexes. became the basis of the armature for an increasing socialization of, of life for the provision of public luxuries uh, libraries and you know <laughs> the swimming pools that Hillary uh, 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 talked about this is tremendously important even if the large scale mass housing of this kind in the center of the city, in other words, the policy changed from one of uh, emphasizing the periphery and the connections with the countryside to one reinforcing urbanism and urban culture uh in very imaginative and you know in radical uh uh you know ways. And the importance of this for me, uh, and something I wrote about years ago, was for how cities will cope with the so called contradiction between the finite and probably exceeded available environmental footprint uh, for slowing or, or stopping climate change, which, of course, is a barrier totally broken through, and a decent quality of life for all people on the uh, uh, the planet. It may be a particularly American concern because the largest American environmental organization has a strong tendency within it to depict this as an unavoidable contradiction.
3: That's the point uh, raised uh, by Mike. Uh, The communal housing programs in Vienna were also of a very high ecological standard. I mean, uh, notice that in 1926, when the program was adopted by the city council, one of the provisions has been that um, only 15 per- 15% of the ground covered by the houses uh, are allowed to be covered by the, by the constructions, by the houses, while uh, the rest of the space available uh, was to be dedicated to um, communal uh, services or to uh, parks or, or to kindergartens or, or, or swimming pools. So that was also in this way, so to say, ecologically um, uh, revolutionary. At the same time, and that comes now closer to the question of hegemony, if you uh, look into the aesthetics, uh, of the uh, of the big uh, housing complexes, they very cautiously experimented uh, with forms which were partially traditional, uh, partially modern. So what they actually tried is uh, not to overwhelm the um, developed taste uh, of people who were supposed to live in these complexes, but tried to accommodate first to their tastes and secondly, to include the big complexes into the general picture of the city. So if you go now through Vienna, uh, Indeed, you have the feeling that these huge complexes are part of the city and not uh, alienated islands as the conservatives tried to uh, to portray them. Um, oh, one word uh, regarding the vulnerability. Um, my take is that... Um, the defeat of the social democratic parties in the 30s actually took already place between 1930 and 1933, uh, when uh, the conservative government decided to skip uh, the uh, tax share of the municipality of Vienna. I mean, uh, normally the, the, the story is told like this. Municipal housing in Vienna was possible uh, because they, um, the city hall introduced taxation of luxury. In fact, uh, if you take the whole budget of the city, uh, the luxury tax concerned only 20% of the entire budget. The rest were um Taxes, provincial taxes, which the which the city of Vienna uh, was entitled uh, to levy, and forty uh, percent of the budget came from the state, which was normal since sixty percent of the uh, economic uh, power of the entire state was located uh, in Vienna. So they got only a part of the product which they delivered to the state. However, when uh, the government decided to force them to apply strict um, austerity measures, they had to lower the wages of the of the employed people of the municipality. Actually, they had first to reduce, then uh, to stop uh, the construction of municipal housing. Uh, even I think uh, the last one uh, was finished in 1932. Uh, Hugo Breitner, the then um, secretary of fin- councillor for finances in the city hall uh, resigned. So uh, I say this uh, to demonstrate that even this strong position, which they held in the city council, uh, could not protect them uh, from the uh, onslaught of the reactionary government, which mainly started with an onslaught on the municipal uh, municipal finances. Uh, second, uh, short remark: um, maybe the scope. Um, looking at the economic interrelations between Austria after the World War with uh, um, the rest of the world is um, a too big one. Uh, we must not forget that Austria was the result of the dismembering of um, a common economic, social and political space. And uh, Without going now into the details of this, I would be very aware of the fact that dismembering um, grown economic uh, relations and spaces always has severe repercussions on the different members and, of course, on the weakest ones among them. And uh, now, a, a word on, on Gramsci and Otto Bauer. That's a very interesting question. I first came across Otto Bauer uh, at the end of the 70s, uh, when the socialist youth organizations of Austria uh, tried to establish a structured dialogue with the uh, Euro-Communist parties in Italy, France, um, and uh, Spain. And uh, the... Bridge heads on the both sides were Otto Bauer on the side of the left socialists and uh, Antonio Gramsci on the other side. And indeed, I believe that there are very strong uh, parallels and very strong um, convergences, particularly in the question how power is uh, related to um, cultural and uh, intellectual uh, leadership. In uh, the brochure Path to Socialism, um, in uh, which Bauer expresses himself very solidaristically towards the Soviet Union and towards Bolshevism, Uh, he addresses the question straightforwardly by saying, the question is, is the Bolshevik model an applicable, necessary model, which can be used generally uh, for advance to socialism, and he says not. Insofar, it coincides with the argument uh, of Gramsci. But then he goes a step further by saying um, the problem with Bolshevism is that they are forced to a policy which is violent, but instead of admitting that they are exercising their policy in extraordinary circumstances, they are starting making an ideology out of it. They are starting to praising violence as the universal tool for social transformation. And this, he says, is wrong. This harms also our efforts to find an alternative uh, way. And he. Ed's even saying we must do away the idea that politics is only concerned with power. He exemplifies this. Then I think uh, Mike uh, made a reference to this to the relation between the countryside and the city. He says, yes, of course we can ten- we can take power, but it- after all, if we had the power, we must come into terms with the vast majority of the people in the countryside. First, because they um, represent the majority of the population. Secondly, uh, we need uh, the food supply. And third, if we want to create socialism on a democratic basis, we cannot resort to violently suppress any opposition outside of the big cities. So this is a very uh, Gramscian uh, idea. Last remark on this. I mean, the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Austria is really a fascinating example of the best which 20th century socialism uh, has produced. Uh, on the one side, uh, its openness towards the society, its capacity to absorb everything which comes from society and to transform it into politics. At the same time, it was also a sectarian party in a way, because representing 40% of the electorate made them believe that um, alliance policy would be in this Power relations a second matter. Which why they had a very long period of a closed uh, attitude towards the Catholic Church. And when um, and uh, when Bauer uh, in 19 I think it was 1926 uh, published uh, his um, a brochure about. Um, Socialism and Christianity, he did not dare to go further than to say, well, religion is a private matter. We regard this as something uh, regressive, but we accept that these people mainly the people on the countryside, have their beliefs. And I think he missed the possibility of taking advantage of contradictions, which actually existed also in the Catholic Church on the countryside, because it was also the church of the poor people. It was not only the church of the hierarchy. It had to accommodate the the, the poor people. And you can give a lot of example in which you can show that this belief, for example, in violence inspired to a large extent uh, the outstanding position of the Schutzbund, the paramilitary defense force of the Austro-Marxist party, which turned out in the situation when it became serious when it became serious, being militarily um, not capable of uh, defending the working class, not even defending the municipal housing. So looking into this party definitely requires a very dialectical approach uh, and um, we should not allow ourselves to be only fascinated, we should also see the limits of the experience. Sorry, I exceeded my time.
2: Okay, we have still like fifteen minutes, and i would I wanted to ask Hillary another question, but we have from our audience, I think a very interesting question that uh, i would I would like to ask you since um, you worked, let's say uh, on, on on really different uh, uh, stuff. and I, the person I suppose uh, from Britain asked that uh, the the big problem of the red Vienna. As we know, was the food scarcity in the um, in the aftermath of the First World War, and um, they are curious how you think the geopolitics would affect the food scarcity for the future, and what is the role of imperialism? Is it does it still uh, play uh, play a role, or uh, so what is uh, what do you think about that that is a very very urgent i suppose and vital question and uh, also related to to the problems that uh, that uh, young uh, austrian state uh, experienced
0: yes i mean it's not a question i've well i've thought about i've thought about the issue of food security and and yeah. the whole ways in which um we've lost con- with the growth of corporate led the corporate driven market and and multinational corporations in agriculture in food production we've lost all um democratic national local control over food unless we unless we develop a different kind of economics and i think there is a strong I don't want to exaggerate, but maybe mainly simply to build on on forms that are emerging. I mean, in a way, it's linked very much to the whole um, climate crisis and the whole um, consciousness of the need for a different way of life. And I I really like Mike's idea about pu- public luxury. I mean, I I think it's an idea which is sort of around. And it, it I mean, obviously, food isn't luxury, but but there is in in the kind of consciousness consciousness of particularly younger generation that's aware of how their food consumption um, contributes to the climate crisis, um, an awareness of the need for different different ways of eating, um, different forms of agriculture. I mean, the whole growth of the vegan movement um, is an example, and that. Is leading to um, people thinking about forms of um, communal eating, communal food production. You know, the growth of um, of, of, of smaller, and organic um, farms. I mean, the, Itali- the Greek situation also provided many models for solidarity economics, which included forms of um, Food. I mean, I, I went to Greece once and saw the kind of alternative food chain there was between um, and between um, not just organic but sort of politically conscious um, cooperative farms providing um food for um the solidarity economics movement, food for their supermarkets, and for direct distribution to people facing poverty and so i think that um in the face of i mean clearly imperialism and corporate led capitalism and multinationals you know i mean have i mean agriculture is a big market food is a big market and agriculture you know is a major um means of 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 accumulation of of extraction of resources of um um use of land, uh, all all of which um you know is 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 a part of of imperialism today and of of corporate power. And so we have to we have to engage in a struggle there. I mean, the whole um, movement around um, via Campesina, it began with the Alta globalization movement. You know you remember um Jose Beauvais. In France and the whole movement around around food security, which is continuing, and it's an interesting movement because, in terms of counterpart, because it combines, you know, building up resistance and mobilisation of particularly um, peasant farmers, um, landless peasants. Um, You know, bringing together the landless movement in in Latin America with parts of the farmers' movement in India, Um, but at the same time also uh, combines that resistance with the creation of alternatives. You know, when you you I looked a bit at the at um, the landless movement in Brazil, which was very militant in terms of occupations and so on, but at the same time it was it was creating alternatives. When it occupied, it actually began to 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 actually produce on that land. So I think it is an issue. Um, uh, since in answer to the questioner, that yes, it is a, a crucial issue. Um, it'll become more and more important in, in the context of climate change. Uh, and um, the left needs to take it seriously. And there is, I mean, in Britain, you know, for example, in, in Liverpool, in several cities, there is a A food security movement, so it's becoming a um, an issue that's that's involving um, the workers' movement um, and not only the the sort of radical young intelligentsia. So it's a very, I think it's a very important future, well, current but emerging um, sort of terrain of, of of struggle and of developing alternatives for which we do need ultimately political power, but we need the more we can develop forms of counter power, you know, in a context where maybe political representation and political power is rather, you know, um, not on the immediate agenda. That shouldn't, that shouldn't um, um, hold us back from developing forms of, of direct action and, and prefigurative forms of production and consumption.
2: Uh, Thank you, Hilary. We have another, and this will be our last question due to our uh, time frame. Uh, We have another question. It is like, it it looks very uh, catchy question. And I would ask uh, Walter, I I mean, I know for for this question, five minutes is definitely not enough, Mm -hmm. but I will (laughs) try to ask you. um, uh, One of our listeners asked, do you think the capitalist states in Central Europe in 1918 and 1919 were more or less democratic than today's advanced capitalist states. Otto Bauer wrote extensively on democracy, and um, democracy problem is, uh, and democracy theory is one of the most elaborated um, theoretical concepts of Austro-Marxism. And I know it is very complex, but could you just give us a
3: uh, few insights about that uh, for the for the finish? Yes, I would definitely say that the state which emerged in 1918 out uh, of the war was uh, an extreme democratic state. There were no repressive organs in function. The army uh, was practically dissolved. The power uh, lay, as the as you in German say, on the streets. Uh, the government had to rely on a permanent con- Consultation uh, with the uh, workers organized in the Workers' Council. So definitely that what uh, Bauer described as um, uh, equilibrium of the class forces existed and uh, created uh, a new and radical form of democracy. Uh, the problem is that um, the balance of forces. Outside Austria, but at the same time inside Austria, uh, deteriorated very quickly. So step by step, the advances were taken back. But in this period in Austria's history,
2: thank you very much, Walter. Uh, this is this was really a nice conclusion, I I think for for this evening. And I would like to thank you all. Thank uh, thank first our guests were here with us and shared their uh, important and valuable insights with us in uh, this discussion. And also to all people who have been watching us uh, and uh, who have uh, joined us uh, for today. Uh, For the end, I will repeat, we have been discussing the Austrian revolution by Otto Bauer, Uh, Haymarket publisher. Yes, you can order the book at Haymarket's website or in your academic bookshop. Thank you all.
1: Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.